would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel as we continue our study in this book. We're looking today at chapter 2, the first 11 verses. 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It's also printed for you in your bulletins if you'd like to follow along there. Uh, We're going to be starting in chapter 2, verse 1, but we need to remember what was going on at the end of of chapter 1. David had heard of Saul's death at Mount Gilboa. Uh, David and a number of his sons died there in battle against the Philistines, and David... Uh, at the end of chapter 1, issued a great statement of lament, of grief, of mourning. And at the end of that, we come to chapter 2, verse 1, and it says this. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nebal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word, and in particular, we thank you for this portion of it that we're looking at today. Thank you, Father, for recording the events that took place in our history, the history of your people. We pray that as we read these words, that your spirit would be at work, opening our hearts and our minds to see wonderful things from this part of your word. And in particular, Father, as we look at David being anointed king over Judah, help us to get a glimpse of what the kingdom of God should look like and help us to be moved to live like that, live the way you've called us to be. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've ever moved to a new city or a new state or even a new country, then you know that when you become a resident in a new place, you need to do the work of trying to figure out what are the rules? What are the customs? What are the traditions of that new place? You have to, you have to start living like the resident uh, of that place that you are now moving to. And I had a fairly stark reminder of this when we moved to Minnesota uh, a little over 12 years ago. Some of you will remember this story. Uh, my wife, my family, and I are from the Midwest. 
We're used to the winter. We're used to snow. We're used to cold. Uh, We are used to uh, all of the things that winter brings, but we still had to learn what it meant to be a resident of Minnesota. I don't remember the occasion, but I was driving up and back from the Twin Cities on a winter day, that first winter we were here. And the temperature was cold. It was below zero. And it was one of those winter days where uh, it's just kind of a wintry, slushy mess on the roads. And as I was driving up to the cities, I realized that I had not taken into account all of the things I needed to becoming a resident in this state. I realized that I had not switched the wiper fluid from my car. As we were driving, as I was driving up into back from the cities, eventually uh, the wiper fluid froze and I couldn't get any liquid to come out onto my windshield. And it was one of those winter days where the dirt and the grime is coming up off the road and just covering the windshield. And it was, it was dirty. I couldn't see. And I found myself driving 65 miles an hour looking for a spot in the dirty windshield where I could see just enough so that I wouldn't go off the road. As a car would go by, or even better yet, as a, as a truck would go by, I would quickly get behind it so that some of the water from the road would splash up onto the windshield and I could get a little bit of clear, clearing. And eventually, one time, at one point on the way back, I actually had to pull off the side of the road and get some snow from the ground and put it on the windshield so that I could clear it off and be able to see. I was made very aware that I was now a resident in a different place that required a new rule, a new tradition. You put good wiper fluid in your car that's not going to freeze no matter how cold it gets in the Minnesota winters. When we become Christians, we become residents, we become citizens of the kingdom of God. And we have to learn what it looks like To live as residents in this new place, the kingdom of God. Now, we often assume that the main place that we should go in the Bible to learn what that looks like is the New Testament. I mean, after all, we're told that Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. And that his arrival meant that the kingdom of God was being unleashed. It's true that Jesus and Paul and Peter and James and other writers of the New Testament give us commands, give us instructions about what it's like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God that we hear about so often in the New Testament has its roots in the Old Testament. In fact, the kingdom of God existed in the Old Testament. We see it primarily evidenced through the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, we see it being exhibited through the building up and the expansion of the church. And we know that it will finally be consummated when Jesus returns again. All of Scripture teaches us what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. We get commands, instructions about it in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, many times through narrative, through the historical accounts... We get a description of what the kingdom of God looks like, or at least what it should look like. That's true here in 2 Samuel, and in particular in our passage today in verses 1 through 11. 
What we're going to look at is we're going to see what we can learn from David and from this passage about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And we'll see today that it means three things. It means being dependent on the Lord. It also means that our, our loyalty, our allegiances, our commitment must switch from whatever it was to before to the Lord alone. And then lastly, we'll see that living in the kingdom of God entails dealing with opposition to God and how we are to deal with that. So, first of all, living in the kingdom of God means being dependent on God. Now, we need a little bit of context as we jump into 2 Samuel chapter 2. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read about David being anointed king by God through the prophet Samuel. There was not a big public event. It was rather quiet. It was private. It was not publicized. There wasn't a parade. David was likely a young teenager at the time. And it would be 10 to 20 years before David would fully be installed as king over all of Israel. And the time in between of when he was initially anointed by God and when it would come to full uh, realization were years of great difficulty for David living under Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, we read about David hearing the news about King Saul's death on Mount Gilboa and the death of a number of his sons, including David's good friend, Jonathan. And so David knew that now that he had been anointed by God many years before, now the pathway to being the king was clear. King Saul had been killed. Saul's sons, a number of his sons had been killed as well. And so now the pathway to get to the kingdom to become king is clear. David knows that Israel is in a state of crisis. The king has been killed. There's been a massive defeat of the army of Israel on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines have taken over a number of the cities in the north. And nobody is leading and organizing the tribes of Israel, the tribes of God. Now, if it was you or if it was me... We would likely sense the moment and the urgency and the significance of the moment. We would know that we had already been anointed king by God. And we now see the opportunity and we would seize the opportunity as quickly as we could. David's been waiting. He's been waiting patiently. And here's the chance. Here is the chance for him to become the king and to take over the kingdom. One commentator put it this way. We would assume as we read 2 Samuel chapter 1 or 2 Samuel chapter 2 that David's first step would be recruitment and strategizing and collecting of weapons and organizing of the armies. But what does David do? Look at verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord. After going through a season of grief and mourning over the death of his king, King Saul, and the son, Jonathan, David paused to inquire of the Lord. His very first action was to seek out the Lord 
for guidance and direction. And as he does so, David is showing us that he understood at a fundamental level that he was completely and utterly dependent upon the Lord. Even though he had been told and promised that he would be the king, and even though the time was ripe, David didn't presume. He, he wasn't driven by selfish ambition. He wasn't driven by anxiety because of what was going on in Israel. He paused to inquire, recognizing his dependence upon the Lord. This is in direct contrast to Saul and Saul's actions. In 1 Chronicles chapter 10, which is a parallel account of these things we're reading about in Samuel, we read this. Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the commandment of the Lord and he consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek the guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David. You see this massive contrast happening between these two kings. King Saul, who didn't inquire of the Lord. In fact, he went to go find some kind of guidance from the occult. And then we have David, who stops and inquires of the Lord, recognizing his dependence on the Lord. And notice that the Lord answers David. We see that at the end of verse 1, going into the next part of the passage. David said, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also. And David brought up his, his men who were with him and everyone from his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. David inquired. He sought the guidance of the Lord. He acknowledged his dependence on God to guide and to direct him. And God answered him and said, you are to go up. Go up to the city of Hebron. This was a, a fairly small town that's about 20 miles south, southwest of Jerusalem. But it was a very significant city that was rich in covenant history. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah were all buried in Hebron. You couldn't walk around that city without being reminded of God's covenant promises and faithfulness to his people. And notice David did, didn't hesitate to follow the Lord's direction. All of David's family and all of the men who were with him and all of their families all went there to settle in Hebron. It must have been a sizable crowd. After all, we're told that it, they had to settle in the towns of Hebron, meaning not just the city proper, but all of the areas around it. And when they arrived, look and see what happened in verse 4. The men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Remember, David had already been anointed king by God through the prophet Samuel. But now the people were coming and ratifying and committing themselves to what was already true that David was to be king. We'll talk about this more in a minute, but notice that it's only the tribe of Judah for now. Now, before we move on, let's reflect just for a moment on this aspect of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. It means being dependent on the Lord, uh, of being dependent on the Lord. What does that look like? Well, at the very least, it means something about our attitude, about our mindset, 
that we have this mindset all of the time that the Lord is in charge, not me. The Lord is in control, not me. He is the creator. I am the creation. He is the one who is the sovereign ruler over all the universe. And I am his creation. Our attitude must have that in mind all the time that helps us to be dependent upon the Lord, recognizing that. But it's more than just our attitude. It also must reflect in how we live our lives. In everything we do, we should be seeking the Lord first. Seeking His plan, His glory, His honor, not my own. That we would seek out guidance and direction from God. That we would be people of prayer. That we would call upon the Lord to guide us and to direct us and to show us. It means being dependent on the Lord is something to do with our attitude. It also has to do with how we live. And I also want you to recognize the fact that it means that we are dependent on the Lord and we follow the Lord even when the answer that we get is not some big fanfare result or even something that we want. Did you notice that David was crowned king just over Judah? Eventually he will be king over all of Israel, but this is just the first step. The call for David was not to go to Jerusalem and to be made king over all of Israel. The call to David from God was to go to Hebron and to accept this first step, recognizing his dependence on the Lord. Now, don't we wish that we could inquire of the Lord like David did and get answers like David did? Right? I mean, wouldn't it be really nice... Wouldn't it be really helpful if we could just find out the Lord's will for us about what this is to happen or what that is to happen? Now, we're not given details about how David did it. We're just told that David inquired of the Lord. But most of the scholars and experts believe that probably what happened was is that David went to the high priest, Abiathar. And they used the ephod, which was a, a part of the, the, the religious makeup of the, of the priest that he would wear. And they sought the Lord through that means. How cool would it be for us to be able to do something like that? To go to some religious leader somewhere and to be able to ask a question and to find out this is the Lord's will. Thus saith the Lord. But that's not the normal and the usual way that the Lord works anymore. We don't have that kind of an option for us. Think of it this way. David was a key figure in redemptive history. David was the king of the people of God. And one of the main reasons why David is given to us is so that he would point and foreshadow the coming of the Messiah. We don't play the significant role in redemptive history that David did. And we are not foreshadowing the future coming of the Messiah. So we don't need the same kind of access or means to hear from the Lord. But we do have something that's just as powerful. We have the Word of God. We have the revealed will of God. Everything that God's people need to know in terms of what they are to believe and how they are to act out that belief. Everything that we need for faith and for practice. And in addition to the word of God, we are also given this great 
a blessing of prayer, direct access to the Lord God Almighty, that we could pray to him, that we can bring our requests to him, that we can make known to him the things that we need and his glory and that he will answer our prayers according to his perfect will. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we neglect these crucial means of grace, the word of God and prayer, it shows that we don't really believe that we're dependent on God. When we neglect the Word of God, when we neglect spending time in prayer with our Creator and our Father in Heaven, what it really is showing deep down is that we don't really believe that we're dependent upon Him. Because these are the means that He's given to us that we might learn from Him and speak to Him. Secondly, Living in the kingdom of God not only means dependence upon God, it means that our loyalties, our allegiances must switch to be found only in God and first and foremost in God alone. Did you notice what happened as soon as David was anointed king by the people of Judah? What was his first action? We see it in verse 4. Uh, when they, that's the people of Judah, told David that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. What was David's first action? Uh, one commentator, Ralph Davis, said that David here is being sincerely complimentary, blatantly political, and earnestly evangelistic all at the same time. We need a little bit of reminder of some history that's going on here. Earlier in Saul's reign as king, he had rescued the people of Jabesh-Gilead from an invasion by the Ammonite people. And the people of Jabesh-Gilead never forgot it. And we read at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31 that when Saul was killed and his sons were killed at Mount Gilboa, the Philistines took their bodies back to a Philistine city and they fastened their bodies to the wall. And so what we're reading here is that as these people of Jabesh Gilead, when they heard what had happened, they planned a raid and we're told that they traveled the 20 miles round trip to recover the bodies of Saul and his sons and to give them a proper burial, showing honor and respect to their fallen king. Now, when David heard about that, it was them who had done this act. He sent messengers to them and expressed his gratitude and even gave them a blessing. That's what he's saying there in verses 5 and 6. May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. That word loyalty is the Hebrew word chesed. It's the word that's often used to talk about God's covenant love and faithfulness to his people. And you see what David is saying as he, as he reaches out to these people in the far northern part of Israel. And he says, you have extended this chesed, this loving kindness, this faithfulness to Saul and to his household and to the kingdom. And so, may God bless you. May God extend his loving kindness and his faithfulness to you. 
Notice David is not just blessing them and expressing his gratitude for what they had done. He does something else in verse 7. He tells them, Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David wasn't just expressing gratitude and blessing to the people of Jabesh-Gilead for what they had done. He is directly asking for their allegiance and their commitment to him. Why? Because David knows that he is the true king. That's one of the reasons why he's using all of this covenant language as he's blessing them, as he's thanking them. He's reminding them that they have a relationship with one another. A new day has started. A new regime is in place. And David is calling them to come together and to unite with him. He's calling them and he knew that when he did this, it would have been costly. These were people who lived in the north. They were not in Judah. And as we're going to see in just a moment, they were under another king. So to give their allegiance, to give their commitment to give their loyalty to David, the one true king, would have been greatly costly to them. But that's what it's like to live in the kingdom and to be faithful to the right king. For us, Jesus calls us to give our allegiance to him as our right and our true king. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is right, is light. Living in the kingdom of God means that our loyalty, our allegiance, our commitment must be to first and foremost to the right king, to King Jesus. Every single human being is created in the image of the one true God. And we are created to give our allegiance and our commitment to our creator. We all serve something or someone. And when we don't serve the Lord God Almighty, we are living, we are failing to live as the whole people that we have been created to be. When we give our allegiances and our loyalties to other things, to other people, more than we do to King Jesus then it leads to bad things happening. Sometimes in this life, but certainly in the life to come. It reminds us of that familiar illustration of a fish swimming in the fishbowl. The fish swimming in the fishbowl, sitting on a table. The fish has all kinds of freedom because it's in the place that it was created to be. It's living in the water where it's and able to flourish and to live and to, 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 to have freedom. But what if one day the fish looks outside the fishbowl and says, there's this whole other aspect of life outside of the fishbowl. I wonder what that's like. I, I, I want to get outside of this fishbowl and experience what that is like. And so he swims around and around and works up some speed and then jumps out of the fishbowl onto the table. What happens to the fish? The fish dies, of course, right? Because it's no longer in the place where it was created to be. It is no longer in the place where it is created to flourish and have life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, all people bearing the image of God, we have been created to give allegiance to the Creator. And when we don't, and we try to live outside of that purpose, 
it leads to bad things and eventually to death. This is true for the people of God as well. Every single day as God's people, we must wake up and we must hear Jesus' call to deny ourselves and to follow Him. Every single day, we must wake up and make a commitment this day to follow the one true King, our King, King Jesus. And that means that we must submit to His rule and to living as a citizen in His kingdom. And we betray that commitment every single time that we fail to do what God's Word tells us to do or when we do things that God's Word tells us not to do. Every single sin that we commit is a declaration of war against King Jesus. It is a betrayal of our allegiance to our King. We need to reflect on that the next time that we're staring temptation in the face. This week, when you have the opportunity to gossip, remember, your allegiance is first and foremost to King Jesus. This week, when you have the opportunity to lie, remember, your loyalty is first and foremost to King Jesus. This week, when you're tempted to look at things you shouldn't be looking at online, remember, your commitment is first and foremost to King Jesus. And also remember that the commitment and the allegiance and the loyalty that we have to King Jesus might be costly. How thankful we should be that it hasn't been too costly to be a Christian in the United States. But that day may be changing. And God has called us to follow Him and to give our allegiance to Him in the kingdom of God, regardless of how easy it is for us. The kingdom of God looks like having commitment to God. It looks like being dependent upon God. And lastly, being a part of the kingdom of God means that we will experience opposition to God. Now look again at verses 8 and following. We read here about Abner, who was a commander of Saul's uh, army. Uh, doing something that's very odd. He takes one of Saul's sons. We don't know. Uh, Ishbosheth may have been at the battle of Mount Gilboa. We're not sure. They may have kept him back just in case something catastrophic happened. But whether he was there or whether he's not there, he's alive. And we read that Abner, who was Saul's cousin and the main commander of the army, takes this, this son of Saul, whose name is Ishbosheth, which means man of shame. And he took him to a city in the northeast part of Israel and he made him king over what is largely the northern part of Israel. Now, remember, Abner knew that God had anointed David to be king. Saul knew that. Certainly Saul's commander of the army would have known it well as also. He knew that he had no power in and of himself to to make Ishbosheth or anybody else king. So by doing what he is doing here in these verses, Abner was perpetuating the hostility between the household of Saul and the household of David. And not only was this an act of aggression against David, this was also an act of open rebellion against the Lord. Because David had been anointed king. This is a reminder for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, that living in the kingdom of God here until Jesus comes back means that we will always face opposition. 
We will always face opposition. It has been that way since Genesis chapter 3. Throughout redemptive history, when Jesus arrived on this earth, from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he dealt with opposition from the religious authorities, from the governing officials, from the kingdom of Satan itself, and even, at times, from his own disciples. Throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, we see opposition to the kingdom of God all over the place. And it will be that way until Jesus comes back again. And so that means a couple things for us as God's people. If we are going to live in the kingdom of God, we need to not be surprised and we must not be surprised when we see and experience opposition to the kingdom of God. It is not new. It is not unusual. It is not to be unexpected. Regardless of where we might fall on the debate about whether this country was established as a Christian nation or not, there has always been opposition to the kingdom of God. We should be thankful. We should be ever so thankful for times and for seasons when we don't experience opposition to the greatest measure. But it does seem like we're entering a season when opposition to the kingdom of God is increasing and becoming more intense. So we must not be surprised. We must not be dumbfounded. We must not be undone when we do experience opposition to the true king and to the kingdom of God. We need to be prepared to live as God's citizens and to face that opposition being Faithful to our true king. But this means not only that we must not be surprised when we see it and experience it. We must not lose hope when we experience it. As opposition increases to the kingdom of God. As it becomes more intense. We as God's people. We as citizens of the kingdom of God. Should not lose hope. The ultimate King David, King Jesus himself, is seated securely on the throne. He is ruling and he is reigning with all sovereignty. It is the one to whom David himself pointed. Psalm 2 is likely a psalm that David himself wrote. And it reminds us of this great hope that we have that regardless of the opposition of the world, the kingdom of God will not be stopped. Listen to what we read in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, and today, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge 
in Him. We have these reminders all throughout the Scriptures that regardless of what opposition is coming toward the kingdom of God, regardless of the the, the strength of the intensity of the opposition to the kingdom of God, we serve a king who is seated and who laughs at the opposition. And we know that once Jesus returns, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we do not lose hope. We are not undone by whatever current events are taking place that show us the opposition to the kingdom of God. We remember that the king is on his throne. He is in control. He is returning. And when he does, all opposition will be silenced. So this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. It looks like being dependent on the Lord. It looks like giving our allegiance, our loyalty, our commitment to the Lord. It looks like dealing with opposition to the kingdom of God. And we're called to live right in the midst of all of that. We're called to be faithful residents and citizens of the kingdom of God. To show dependence on the Lord both in our attitude as well as our actions. To maintain our commitment to our king through our loving and faithful obedience to him. And to expect and not be undone by opposition to the kingdom of God that we face in our lives. That's what it looks like. But if we're honest, that seems pretty heavy. Where is the strength to be able to persevere in a life living like this? We must see that the David that we are reading about in 2 Samuel chapter 2 is the David that pointed us forward to the greater and the better and the ultimate King David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, too, was anointed quietly by his father. Jesus was anointed at his baptism. There wasn't a great uh, parade. There was no publicity or fanfare. He lived a life of, of, of perfect faithfulness and loving obedience. He was perfectly dependent upon his father. He knew the word of God. He spent time with his father in prayer. He put his father's will first in his life. And eventually Jesus, too, went up to receive his kingship. After his resurrection from the grave, he ascended into heaven. And at this very moment, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning and awaiting his return. Jesus was totally and perfectly committed to his Father and his mission on the earth. He had unwavering allegiance and loyalty to do the will of the Father. Jesus warmly and winsomely calls us out even when we were his enemies. And he says, come to me, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. Yes, there is a yoke. Yes, you must switch your loyalty to me. Yes, the allegiance could be costly, but the yoke that I have is easy and the burden is light compared to the burden of this world. Jesus endured more opposition in his 33 years of life on this earth than we will ever be called to experience. And not only did he endure it, but he conquered it. Through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension to heaven, King Jesus has conquered and is conquering all opposition to his kingdom. And his promise to us is that if we are in allegiance with King Jesus, then his victory 
means our victory. Finally and fully once he returns. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the more that we fix our eyes on the king that King David was pointing us to, King Jesus, the more that we will see the extent of his love and the depth of his grace, and the more that we will have hope and strength and power to live now as residents in the kingdom of God, dependent on our Lord, loyal to our Lord, facing the opposition to the kingdom of God with all hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the reminders that you give in it to us. Particularly today, we're so thankful for this picture of the kingdom of God. And as we are citizens of that kingdom by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we too want to be people who serve you faithfully and well. So help us to see our King. Help us to see His, his majesty and His glory and His beauty. Help us to see His grace and His love and His mercy. And as we dwell longly on Him, we pray, Father, that You would fill us with all hope and strength that we might persevere until that day when You come again. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.